ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Verily the praise belongs to Allah we praise him seek his assistance and forgiveness and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds whoever Allah guides there's no one that can lead him astray and whoever Allah leads astray there's no one that can guide him i bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshiped except Allah alone and that he has no partners or associates and i bear witness that muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is his slave servant and his messenger <coughs> we like to begin this evening bismillah ta'ala with the final principle al-asl al-sadis the sixth fundamental of those fundamentals which have been mentioned in the brief essay of Imam Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab ibn Sulaiman al-Tamimi al-Najdi rahimahullah his essay entitled Al-Usul al-Sitta the six fundamentals and the imam he began this essay as the previous essays began or as we began the previous essays mentioning his saying after opening with the name of Allah bismillah ar-rahman ar-rahim he said that of the most amazing of marriages and of the greatest signs or indications of the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala al-malik al-ghaldab the king and the one who is victorious are six fundamentals which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made crystal clear for the common masses of the people for the common people beyond what anyone might imagine then after this many of those the adhiya al-alam that is the most intelligent of people and the uqala of bani adam the most rational of the people of the children of adam they have gone astray concerning these matters concerning these six fundamentals or principles illa qallu al-qalil except an all but negligible number of people in this principle the last of the principles in this brief essay al-imam muhammad ibn abdul wahhab rahimahullah mentions this essay al-asl or this fundamental al-asl as-sadis it is rad al-shubha rad al-shubha allati wada'aha ash-shaytan the refutation of the shubha the doubt or that matter yani that thing which was unclear it was a doubtful matter that shaytan has invented that he has conceived in order to mislead the people and here al-imam muhammad ibn abdul wahhab this in this principle rahimahullah he is refuting that shubha or that doubtful matter which has confused the people rad al-shubha allati wada'a ash-shaytan fi tark al-qur'an wa-sunnah wa-tiba'i al-a'raf wal-ahwa' al-mutafarrika al-mukhtalifa yani the refutation of that shubha or that doubtful matter that shaytan has invented in concerning the abandonment of the qur'an and sunnah yani concerning the abandonment of qur'an and sunnah and the following of the opinions and the desires 
those ara and ahwa al mutafarrika which are varied and differing and which separate and divide the people. And that shubha concerning abandoning the Quran and Sunnah and following the opinions of men, he said, Wahiya anna al Quran wa sunnah la ya'rifuhuma illa al mujtahid al mutlaq. Yani shaytan, he made the people to think. He put it in the minds of the people to deceive them and to mislead them. He made them to think that the Qur'an and the Sunnah, that no one can know it, that no one can understand it, no one can reach it, no one can derive from it the guidance that is necessary for life in this world, illa al-mujtahid al-mukla, except the mujtahid, who is not any the normal scholar, who might make some ijtihad within the bounds of the madhab. No, the major mujtahid, like the imams, like al-imam Abu Hanifa, al-imam Shafi, and those before them and those after them, who laid the principles for that which later became known as the well-known madhahid, al-mujtahid al-mutlaq, the one who is able to derive, or who is qualified to derive legal rulings from the evidences of the sharia, outside of the restrictions or the confines of a method. He made them to think that the Qur'an and Sunnah, that these two sources of the guidance for humanity in this world until Yawm Qiyamah, that no one can understand them, and no one can know them except this great scholar, the Mujtahid al-Mutlaq. وَالْمُجْتَهِدْ هُوَ الْمَوْصُوفِ بِكَذَا وَكَذَا أَوْصَافًا لَعَلَّهَا لَا تُوْجِدْ تَامَةً فِي أَبِي بَقْرُ وَعُمَّرُ رضي الله عنهما yani, He made them to imagine and to think that no one can understand the Qur'an and Sunnah. No one can go directly to it except the Mujtahid al-Mutlaq. And that Mujtahid is described with such and such characteristics. Characteristics which perhaps will not be found fully or completely fulfilled in the likes of Abu Bakr as Siddiq radiallahu anhu or Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu who were the greatest of companions of the Prophet and the leaders of the Muslims after him. He said that even perhaps those, those characteristics or those qualifications that they have set for the Mujtahid al-Mutla that they will not even be found in the likes of such as Abu Bakr al-Umar radiallahu anhuma. فَإِنْ لَمْ يَكُنَ الْإِنسَانِ كَذَلِكَ فَلْيَعْرِضْ عَنْهُمَا فَرْضًا حَتْمًا لَا شَكَّ وَلَا إِشْكَافِينَ Yani, if a person is not described or does not possess these qualifications or these descriptions that they have made for the mujtahid, if a person does not contain these qualifications or these descriptions, then he must turn away from the Qur'an and Sunnah. He must turn away from these two sources, the Qur'an and Sunnah, فَرْضًا حَتْمًا And it is obligatory on him. Definitely, absolutely obligatory for him to turn away from the Qur'an and Sunnah and he should only follow the opinions of those who came before him who are mujtahid mutlaq. He said this is a matter about which there is no doubt and there is no obscurity or vagueness concerning it. It is something that is clear. It is a matter about which there is no doubt and there is no confusion. وَمَنْ طَلَبَ الْهُدَى مِنْهُمَا يعني مِنْ قُرْآنِ وَالسُنَّةِ فَهُوَ they thought, or they said, or he made them to believe that whoever seeks the true guidance and Buddha from these two sources, that is the Qur'an and the Sunnah, then such a person is either a Zindiq, heretic, atheist, or a free thinker, someone who is on his own, just going out of Islam, out of the bounds of Islam, or he is out of his mind, Majnoon, 
and the reason for, for his argument that he used why no one can go to the Quran and Sunnah. He said, because of the difficulty of understanding these two sources, Al-Quran and Sunnah. Yani nobody should go to them except he is one of the scholars of this level of Ijtihad and Mutlaq. Unless he is from them, then he should turn away from these sources, not going directly to the Quran and the Sunnah, because of the difficulty involved in understanding these two sources. This is the shubha, or the doubtful matter, or the confusion that shaitan has set in the minds of the people in order to divorce them from the Quran and the Sunnah. And in order that they would follow the opinions of men, and that they would follow the desires of themselves, he made them to imagine that it is too difficult to understand the Quran and the Sunnah, but rather we should go with the opinions of men which divide and separate the Muslims. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. The shaykh here, Imam Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, this expression is an expression we can understand from it that the matter which he has presented here, it is so great that he said, Subhanallah, yani the declaration that Allah is the one who is perfect, who is free of any imperfection, and he is the one who deserves to be praised. And it is an amazing thing that the people have believed such a thing, especially, he said, كَمْ بَيِّنَ اللَّهُ سُبْحَانَهُ شَرْعًا وَقَدْرًا خَلْقًا وَعَمْرًا فِي رَدِّ هَذِهِ الشُّبْهَةَ الْمَلْعُونَةَ مِنْ وُجُوهٍ شَتَّةَ فَلَدَتْ إِلَى حَدِّ الضُّرُورِيَاتِ الْعَامَةِ He said, how much or to what extent has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made clear the refutation of this, this cursed shubha or cursed doubtful matter of the doubtful matter, shar'an wa qadran, in that which he has legislated in the sharia, or that which he has decreed in the divine decree. And likewise, khalqan wa amran, that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created, yani that which he has brought about, that which he has allowed to happen in this world, wa amran, and that which he has ordered or commanded. In these things, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, both in that which he has legislated and that which he has decreed, he has made clear the refutation of this accursed doubtful matter from various perspectives which reach the point to that which the Imam calls here al-Daruriyat al-Ama meaning that it is of those things that knowledge which of necessity has to be known by all of the people commonly it is not something that is known to a selected few only to the scholars or to the students of knowledge but it is something that of necessity every Muslim is required to know that clarification that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made concerning this doubtful matter, it has reached that level. That it is of the knowledge which everyone should know and could know. In spite of that, in spite of the clarification and the clarity with which this matter has been presented and the proofs of the reputation of this doubtful matter that was invented by shaitan to mislead the people, in spite of that, most of the people do not know. Yet still, most of the people do not know. Then he mentions the ayah from Quran in Surah Yasin, chapter 36, verse 7 to 11. That the word has proved proof, that the people would be punished. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He has, it has been written as such that most of them, they will not believe. 
Most of them would not believe. Yani most of the people are not believing. In spite of the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent messengers and prophets to every nation, in spite of the fact that He has sent revelation to guide the people and to warn the people and to call them to that which is right, in spite of that, most of them would not believe. إِنَّا جَعَلْنَا فِي عَنَاقِهِمْ أَغَلَالًا فَهِيَّ إِلَى الْأَذَقَانِ فَهُمْ مُقْمَحُونَ That we have made, we have made in their necks, or we have placed in their necks, أَغَلَالًا iron palace. And it is up to their chins which forcing their heads to be raised up. وَجَعَلْنَا مِنْ بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِمْ سَدًّا And we have made in front of them barriers. وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ سَدًّا And behind them barriers. فَأَخْشَيْنَاهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُبْسِرُونَ And we have covered them so they do not see. Even though the proofs are clear, but they do not see. سَوَاءٌ عَلَيْهِمْ أَنْذَرْتَهُمْ أَمْ لَمْ تُنْذِرْهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ It is the same. There is no difference whether you warn them or you do not warn them. لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ They will not believe. And this is what we see not only amongst those who are not Muslims, amongst the non-Muslims, but even amongst the Muslims, when they are warned, even we find that many of the people, even if you try to call them to that which is right, most of them will not accept it. إِنَّمَا تُنْذِرُوا مَنِ اتَّبَعَ الذِّكْرَ وَخَشِيَ الرَّحْمَانِ بِالْغَيْبِ فَبَشِّرُهُ بِمَا غَفِرَةٌ وَأَجْرٌ كَرِيمٌ But those who will take heed to the warning or to the reminder, to the Qur'an, to the dhikr, those who will take heed are those who follow the Qur'an, who follow the reminder, the dhikr. And those who will accept the warning, those who will accept the invitation, those who will follow the guidance and be, who will benefit from the warning or from the call are those who follow the dhikr, who follow the Qur'an. And who follow the revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed, that which came in the Qur'an and in its explanation and demonstration, the sunnah of the Prophet and those who fear Ar-Rahman, who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the unseen. So give them the good news, فَبَشِّرُهُ بِمَغْفِرَةٍ of forgiveness, وَعَجِرٍ كَرِيمٍ and a noble reward that is in Jannah. Then he closed this principle, وَآخِرُهُ وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ And he closing the book, the essay, this brief essay, by mentioning the praise of Allah, the Lord of the world, وَصَلَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمِّدٍ وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين. And that may the praise of Allah and the highest assemblies of the angels be upon Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and his family and his companions until يوم الدين, until the day of accounting, the day of judgment. The Shaykh Muhammad ibn Salih al-Taymin رحمه الله in his explanation or commentary on this principle has limited his discussion to the essence of the issue that Al-Imam Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab has presented here. And the essence of this issue is the abandonment of the Qur'an and Sunnah, and the following of the opinions of men which are in contradiction or which have deviated from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And here of course he means the opinions of men which are not based upon the Qur'an and Sunnah, that which is in contradiction to it. Whoever abandoned the Qur'an and the Sunnah to follow the opinions of men, then this issue is summarized or it is under the title of Al-Ijtihad wa Taqlid. Yani al here being those who 
follow the opinion of someone else without an evidence or proof. I mean, following the opinion of someone, whether a scholar or otherwise, without any proof. He means here, this is what he means by taqlid. And the issue of ijtihad is also here due to the fact that the Muslims are required in every time and in every age. The scholars from amongst them, especially, they are required. It is obligatory upon them to make ijtihad in reference to those issues that are not specified clearly in the Qur'an and the Sunnah based upon the proofs of the Sharia that are found in the revelation of the Qur'an and the authentic Sunnah. Therefore, the Shaykh has mentioned here in his commentary what is al-ijtihad and what is al-taqlid. So he begins by mentioning the saying of the author, Imam Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab rahimahullah, Raddu al-shubha al-lati wada'a al-shaytan fi sarq al-Qur'ani wa-sunnah wa-tibal araa wa-ahwaa al-mutafarriqa al-mukhalifa. And the reputation of the doubts which were placed by shaytan concerning the abandonment of the Qur'an and Sunnah and following the opinions and the desires. I mean, the various and different opinions and following the desires of men instead of following the Qur'an and Sunnah. He said, Al-Ijtihad, and the definition of Al-Ijtihad, Lughatan, linguistically, is Badlu Al-Juhud, the Idraq, Amrin, Shaq. Yani, that a person makes an effort, making the effort in order to reach or to achieve or to understand a difficult matter, to reach a difficult matter. Making the effort, this is the linguistic meaning, exerting oneself, making an effort to achieve some difficult matter. Wasilahan, technically, he said the meaning of it is, Bazrul Juhud li Idraq, Hukmin Shar'i. That it is exerting the effort in order to reach or to achieve a legal ruling, hukum shar'i, a legal ruling in the deen of Allah, a ruling based on the evidences of the Qur'an and Sunnah. So that al-ijtihad here, it means that the scholars should exert themselves in making an effort to investigate the evidences that came in the Qur'an and that came in the Sunnah and according to the rules that have been developed from the time of the Prophet ﷺ until our day that are contained in the sciences of usul al-fiqh and those rules and regulations found in the knowledge, the science of mustalah uh, hadith and such matters that the Shaykh will mention. He said that they must exert themselves and make an effort in order to derive or to reach the legal ruling concerning a particular matter. Then he says, al-ijtihad lahu shuroot minha that al-ijtihad has conditions. And from amongst those conditions, and he, what he has stated here of the conditions of al-ijtihad are pretty much agreed upon. And most of the books of Usul al-Fiqh mention these principles as he has mentioned them here, or similarly, and he, perhaps with sometimes different wording. The conditions of ijtihad, yani for a person to be qualified to make ijtihad, he said, it is that they should know the legal evidences, al-adilla al-shara'iyya. They should know the legal evidences which are necessary for the person to make ijtihad. That is, the ayat of Qur'an that deal with legal matters, and the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that deal with legal matters, that deal with ahkam. They should know these legal evidences from the Qur'an 
and from the Sunnah. The second one, he said that they should know that which is connected to or related to the authenticity or the weakness of hadith. hadith They have to know something about this in order to know which hadith are proper to be used as an evidence in a matter. They should know which hadith are classified as authentic or those which are of the level that may be used as a proof in the deen and those which are rejected. And he said that here they should know something about the isnad or the chain of narrators and the narrators themselves and the other matters that are related to this. Number three, he said that they should know al-nasib wal mansuq. They should know something about the science of abrogation. That which abrogates and that which is abrogated. They should know this science in order to be aware of what has been abrogated, of legal evidences that came in the Quran or in the Sunnah, and what abrogates it, so that they would not use as a proof something that has been abrogated, and whose ruling has been cancelled and is not operative. And also those matters about which there is consensus, that the scholars have reached an agreement or a consensus upon it, they should know, so that they would not make a ruling based on that which is abrogated or they would not make a ruling that is in contradiction to that which there is ijma or consensus about. Then he said they also should know those evidences which are the basis of changing a ruling due to what is called taqseed or taqeeed. And in those evidences which limit or restrict Another evidence, another evidence from the Qur'an or Sunnah that is general, then it might be specified or it might be limited. So they also have to know about those evidences which affect the ruling in this way so that they would not contradict it. And they should know the Arabic language or they should be familiar with the Arabic language, of course, so that they can understand the evidences properly and that they should know from the usul of fiqh, the fundamentals, those basic laws or basic principles that are used as guidelines to operate within when looking at the evidences from Quran and Sunnah and making a judgment or a ruling. He said that they need to know from these things that which is connected to the meanings or the indications that come from the expressions that are in the Quran and Sunnah. They need to know what is aam and what is khas what is mutlaq and what is muqayyid, what is mujmal and mubayyin, and so on. And these are expressions that, these are expressions that are studied in the science of usul fiqh and they make us to understand and know and be familiar with what is aam and what is khas. Yani what is generally all-inclusive, which is aam, including all the members of a certain group, for example, or that which is khas which separates a few of those people or a specific person or a specific item from amongst the general group of a certain class. What is arm and what is khas? So that that which is arm, which is in generally all-inclusive, it should be applied to everything that is of that class. And what is khas should be limited to that which is specified by the evidence that limits it to a particular item or a particular entity or a particular person or a certain number of people and so on. And these are rules that require time for explanation. However, the general subject it is contained basically in the science of usul al-fiqh, understanding how expressions that came in the evidences of the Quran and Sunnah should be applied. 
also he said that they should have an ability, the qudra that enables them to derive the rulings from the evidences. And the ability to look at the evidences and to understand them in such a way that they can derive the proper rulings from them. After mentioning these conditions, Shaykh Muhammad bin Talib Uthaymeen, Rahimahullah, he says that ijtihad, it can be partial ijtihad. It is not necessarily something that has to be absolute and all-inclusive. Yani, there may be ijtihad in a certain topic, or there may be ijtihad in a certain issue from amongst the issues. The Messiah doesn't have to be that a person is capable of making ijtihad in all matters, but it can be also partial ijtihad in reference to a particular topic or a particular subject or a particular matter, a specific matter or issue. The important thing, he said, that which is required of the mujtahid is that it is a necessity that he exert his effort in order to reach the knowledge of what is the truth and then he must rule according to according to what he sees as being the truth. Yani the mujtahid is required, is, it is obligatory upon him to make his effort as best he can to know what is the haq, what is the truth, and then to rule according to that which appears to him to be correct. That is what is required of him, and it is not required that he has to be correct in every situation or circumstance. He said that if he reaches the correct opinion, then he will receive two rewards. One reward for his ijtihad, for the effort that he has made. And if we're making a sincere effort to seek the truth, sincerely for the sake of Allah, and for the benefit of Islam and the Muslims, he gets a reward from Allah, just for his ijtihad. And likewise, he will get a reward for, uh, for actually achieving the truth, for reaching the truth. A reward for his effort, that is separate from the reward for the one who actually reaches the correct opinion. And this is so because in achieving the correct opinion, it is a means of showing or bringing out what is the truth, what is correct, and then acting accordingly. Yani the one who makes ijtihad and reaches the correct opinion, then he brings forth the truth and he enables the people to act in accordance with it. So there's a reward for his effort and there's an additional reward for him actually achieving the correct position. However, if he errs or makes a mistake in his ijtihad, in the ruling that he comes up with, if he makes an error in it, then he will get one reward. The shaykh said, lahu," And his error in his ijtihad, though he has erred and he has not reached the correct opinion, his error is forgiven. He is not punished and he is not blamed for making an error as long as he has made his best effort and sincerely sought the truth, if he errs in his judgment, then it is forgiven. In fact, as some of the scholars said, not only is his error forgiven, but he is also rewarded. Not rewarded for making an error, but rewarded for the effort, the sincere effort that he's made. And this is based on the saying of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in the hadith that is recorded by al-Bukhari and Muslim, إِذَا حَكَمَ الْحَاكَمَ فَاجْتَهَدَ ثُمَّ أَصَابَ فَلَهُ أَجْرَانَ that when the one who makes a ruling, when he strives to make the correct ruling and he reaches the correct position, then he will have 
two rewards. وَإِذَا حَكَمَ فَاجْتَحَدَ ثُمَّ أَقْطَعْ فَلَهُ أَجْرٌ But when he makes a ruling and he makes an effort to reach the correct opinion but he errs, then he will get one reward. And if the correct ruling or if the ruling in that matter doesn't become clear to him and he is not able to determine what is correct in that issue, then it is obligatory on him to refrain from making a ruling. And when the issue is not clear to him, it becomes obligatory on him to refrain from making a ruling or a judgment in that matter. And likewise, he said that here in this case, where the one who cannot reach the, the cannot realize the correct position or the correct ruling in a matter, he said here it is permissible for him to perform taklid out of necessity. And in this situation, for the mujtahid who is not able to realize the correct ruling in a matter, it is permissible for him in this situation where he is unable to reach, to know or to realize the correct ruling out of necessity. If it is, if it is a matter that is in front of him and he has to rule on it and he cannot himself reach the correct ruling, then he might perform taklid, that is, he might and he takes the opinion of another scholar out of necessity. And this is based on the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Nahl, chapter 16, verse 43, This evidence, it is applicable to the common masses of the people, as well as it is applicable in case of necessity for the mujtahid who is unable to realize the correct ruling. Here, Shaykh Muhammad, Rahimahullah mentioned the statement of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, Rahimahullah, he said that at taklid it is in the station or in the position or the status or it is similar to, taklid is similar to the position of the one who eats from a dead animal, and is an animal that dies of itself. Therefore, whoever is able to bring forth the evidence on his own, to bring forth the evidence in a particular issue, in that case, it is not permissible, it is not lawful for him to make taklid. And he just as the one who would starve to death because they don't have food if they found an animal which is unlawful to eat, the animal which dies of itself. It is permissible for them to eat that animal or to eat from it, that which is required out of necessity in order to save their life and not beyond that or more than that because they don't have anything else to eat to save their life. However, if they were able to find some lawful food, then it wouldn't be permissible to eat from that. And likewise, he said, is the, is the situation of taklid, that it is permissible in the situation of the one who is not able to determine or to uh, uncover the evidence on their own in order to find what is the correct position in an issue. And in that case, they are allowed to take the opinion of someone else. Then he said, he quotes from the statement of the student of Shaykh Al-Taymiyyah ibn Qayyim, Rahimahullah, in his poetry or his poem entitled Al-Nuniyyah, Al-Ilmu Ma'arifatul Huda Bi Dalil, Madaka wa Taqlidu Yisrawiyan. Yani that ilm, the, the true meaning of ilm or knowledge, it is knowing the guidance based on evidence. And it is knowing the truth based on evidence. And then he said, these two are not equal. That ilm, which is knowing the truth or the right way based on evidence, 
and a taqlid. They are not equal, they are not the same. Taqlid and knowing the evidence in the matter is not equal. Then the Shaykh talks about a taqlid and he mentions uh, the situations, two situations in which taqlid is allowed. And he mentions the division of a taqlid into two types. And he mentions briefly, and it's something related to the difference of opinion of the scholars concerning a taqlid. This is a matter about which there is difference of opinion. And as he mentioned here, there are those who hold it to be obligatory, as perhaps we have heard, there are those who say that it is obligatory to follow a particular imam, to follow one imam and to stay within that madhab and not to go outside of it. And there are those who say that it is haram, yani that it is forbidden to do taqlid. And yani, the truth of the matter is that there is some explanation that needs to be looked at in detail to understand the ruling concerning it. Taqlid means ittiba'a qawli al-ghayr bila hujja. Taqlid means following the statement or the opinion or the saying of someone else without a hujja, without a dalil, without a proof, without an evidence. Following the opinion of someone else without any proof, without them offering any proof, just following it. Yani following blindly. And he said that this taqlid, there are two situations in which it will occur. The first of them is that the muqallid, the one who is doing taqlid, he is from the common masses of the people. Ami. He is a common person who doesn't have knowledge. He is not able to know what is the ruling on his own. He is not able to determine the ruling in a matter on his own. In this case, it is obligatory on him to follow the opinion of someone else. And this is based on the ayah which he mentioned earlier, then ask the people of the reminder. And the people of knowledge, the ulama, the scholars, if you do not know. That is the one who doesn't know, was not able to determine the ruling, was not able to reach the correct position concerning a matter, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered them. He commanded them to ask the people of knowledge. Then the shaykh said, that the one who is in this situation, who is unable to know the evidences or to reach the correct ruling concerning a matter, that he should take the opinion of the best of those who he finds. The best of those who he finds. Not just from the first, first person who comes along, but the best person who he finds in knowledge and the best person he finds in character and trustworthiness. And he has to look at the integrity of the person as well as the knowledge. He shouldn't just find someone who seems to be a righteous and good person but might not have correct knowledge. Nor should he just look at the extent of the person's knowledge without looking at the integrity, whether that person is a trustworthy person. But he must look at the best of people in, in these two uh, characteristics, the best of them in knowledge and the best of them in piety and righteousness and fearing Allah. And if there are two who he found who are equal, then in that case, he has the choice to choose between them. And it was mentioned just uh, this evening on the way to the masjid that Shaykh Muhammad Nasruddin al-Albani, rahimahullah, concerning this very point, he said that the ijtihad of the Ami, his ijtihad is in his choosing which one he will make taqlid of. And that's his ijtihad, that's the extent of his ijtihad. But he shouldn't 
go to the Quran and the Sunnah, which he doesn't understand and he doesn't have the ability to understand, and try to make a ruling or a judgment. But what he should do, he should make ijtihad, to choose the best of those who are available to follow or to ask and to question about the matters of his deen. So the first situation where there's taqlid, it is the person who is from the common masses of the people, who doesn't have the ability to reach the correct ruling on his own, to understand the evidences or to find them. That person should ask someone from the people of knowledge, who should seek the best of those who are available in knowledge and in character, uh, and take from them. The second situation in which a taqlid would take place, the second situation is that the mujtahid scholar, the one who is able to make ijtihad, who is capable to go to the evidences of the Qur'an and Sunnah and to derive rulings, that that person finds himself in a situation that requires them to make an instant ruling. I mean, where they are in a situation where they don't have the chance to go back and look at the evidences and research the topic and reflect upon it and try to derive a ruling. But they have to make a ruling instantly. Even in that case, it is allowed for the mujtahid who is not able to examine the issue instantly and is required to make an instant ruling. It is permissible for him in that situation to do a taqlid. So here the shaykh has given two situations or circumstances where indeed taqlid is allowed, it is allowed for the one who is incapable of making a ruling, and it is allowed for the one who is capable of making rulings normally but doesn't have the time or the chance to do so, therefore they may take the opinion of someone else. Then the shaykh, he says that a taqlid is of two types. A taqlid nawaan, am wa Taqlid is of two types. There are two types of taqlid. The first of them is a taqlid, yani general taqlid, al-am. It means here that, as he said, that a person would stick to a particular madhab and he would take the permissions, the rukhah and the azaim, the permissions and those things which are considered to be, yani, Definitely ordered, when one is definitely ordered to do those things which are allowed and those things which are commanded, according to that madhab, he will follow them. He will accept what they have allowed and he will do what they have commanded in all of the affairs of his religion. This is the arm, yani that a person follows a madhab, a particular madhab, a single madhab in all of the matters of his, of his religion, that which is commanded and that which is allowed and so on. Uh, the second type is al-khas, but before mentioning the khas, he says concerning al-am or the general taqlid, he said that the ruling concerning this taqlid, there's difference of opinion concerning. There are amongst the scholars who said that it is wajib, it is obligatory. This type of taqlid, taqlid al-am, obviously for those who don't have the ability to seek the correct ruling, there are those scholars who said that it is obligatory. It is obligatory. And there are those scholars who said that it is muharram, that it is prohibited. And the reasoning for those who said that it is obligatory, they said it is obligatory because of the inability of the later generations of the people to make ijtihad. But the later people, they are far from the uh, knowledge and the ability to make ijtihad, therefore, for them it is obligatory to make taqlid. As for the second group who said 
that it is prohibited, that it is forbidden to make taklid. Their reasoning or their explanation, they said it is due to an iltizam as a mutlaq, the ittiba ghayr nabi sallallahu alayhi wa And it's an absolute requirement of following someone other than the Prophet And if they said that this taklid, it necessitates that, if, that a person has absolute following for someone other than the Prophet therefore they said it is haram. Because absolute following is only for the Prophet uh, and no one other than him. So they said then, this taklid, of course they are talking about the taklid which is absolute following. Yani of those who follow a madhab in every opinion, in every matter, without any consideration of the evidences, then they, the second group held that this type of technique, uh, that it is prohibited. And the reasoning is because absolute following or ittiba' it is only for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Shaykh rahimahullah said that indeed the saying of those who said that it is obligatory to obey other than the Prophet ﷺ in everything that he has commanded and everything that he has prohibited, that this is in contradiction to Al-Ijma'ah. And it's the saying of those who say that it is obligatory, not that it is permissible, but it is obligatory to make taklid of someone, and to follow strictly in every matter, in every command, in every prohibition, someone other than the Prophet ﷺ, who said this is a contradiction. It is in opposition to the ijma, yani the ijma that obedience, absolute obedience is only to Allah and His Messenger sallallahu As for the permissibility of taqlid, he said, fihi ma fihi. Fihi ma fihi, what you can understand from this is that he is saying that even those who said that it is permissible to do taqlid also to the matter that yani, uh, it also has and it's some question about it. It's not something that is absolute. After Al-Aam, he says that the second type of taqlid, it is Al-Khaas. This type of taqlid, it is that a person takes a particular saying or a particular opinion in reference to a particular issue. Yani that they follow the opinion of someone in a particular issue, not following all the opinions of one madhab, but on a particular issue, they follow that opinion. They take that opinion, and he said that to do so is jahil, it is permissible. It is permissible to do so, however, he said, it is permissible to do so for the one who is incapable or unable to know the truth or the correct position through which he has. And if the one who is unable to do so, it is permissible to take a particular opinion or to follow the saying of a scholar in a certain issue in which one is unable to know what is the truth of the matter. And he said this, it is permissible whether the person is incapable in reality, and if they have no way really to know what is the truth, or if they are incapable, meaning that they have the ability to do so, but only with great effort and difficulty and hardship. And even that one who perhaps could reach the truth after great effort and difficulty and hardship, like the student of knowledge who knows Arabic language and who knows something about tafsir of the Qur'an and something about the sunnah of the Prophet and the hadith which is sahih and da'id and who knows how to go to 
the scholars and their opinions and their sayings about a matter, perhaps one issue, it might take them a week or a month to research. After great difficulty, they might reach the truth. He said, in that situation, the one who is able to reach the truth, but only after great difficulty, even in that situation, is permissible for them to do a taqlid in the limited sense. Yani, taqlid on a particular issue or a particular uh, matter. Then the Shaykh, he said, then he closes here saying, this is yani, the end of what we wanted to say concerning these six fundamentals. And we ask Allah to reward the author, that is Shaykh Muhammad uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullah, with the best of rewards. And that he gather us together in the place of honor, that is Al-Jannah. Indeed, he is the one who is generous and noble. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala nabiyya Muhammad sallallahu wa sallam. And this is the end of the essay, and it is the end of the commentary of Shaykh Muhammad ibn Salih Uthaymeen. Uh, and perhaps, really before looking at the question at the end of the handout, uh, just quickly, I wanted, for the sake of benefit, I wanted to just mention something briefly from what has been mentioned by uh, Al-Imam ibn Qayyim, Al-Alam, Al-Muwaqi'een, and Rabb Al-Alameen. Uh, in the end of the book, or near the end of uh, this book, he has a chapter uh, which he has written it as a discussion or a debate between a muqallid or sahib al-hujjah. And he's the one who will absolutely follow the opinion someone else without any proof or without any evidence or without requesting or requiring or desiring or having any, any need for any proof but just blindly following and the one who demands evidence and who seeks evidence in the issue. And this particular chapter is a very lengthy chapter. It goes on for about 60 pages and obviously I don't intend to read it. <laughs> but uh, some few comments of what he has said here. And in general, he has presented the arguments of the Muqallid and what are the proofs that they use to show the permissibility or the obligation of blindly following someone. Then he mentioned after that the evidences of those who hold that it is not obligatory for sure and perhaps not permissible in certain circumstances circumstances or situations. And here he has mentioned, I think, about 80-something arguments during the course of this chapter. Uh, the important thing, I mean, there are just a few points that are important that perhaps we can mention. Uh, from amongst them, which I thought was very interesting, this is the clear contradiction of those who want to support their madhab at any court. And we find this very common amongst uh, some of those who have a little knowledge and who are capable of looking for evidences to support their position or their opinion or their madhab, uh, even when it is wrong. And here he has mentioned, any one of the points here he has mentioned, and the obligation of following, the obligation of following 
or accepting and adhering to the hadith of the Prophet whether it is in accordance with your opinion or contrary to it. And he said it is interesting that some of those people who blindly follow, they are capable to find some evidence from the hadith of the Prophet which supports their opinion. And they use it, they present it as a proof for their opinion in a certain matter, while the very same hadith contains another ruling that is contrary to their madhab, and they ignore that part of the hadith which doesn't agree with them and try to force on you the part of the hadith that is in agreement with them. Then he gives a number of examples like this, and from amongst them he gives the example of those who use as a proof uh, that al-Fatiha is not obligatory in the Salat. He said the hadith of al-Musi al-Musi the one who didn't perform his Salat well. In that hadith, the Prophet وسلم, is reported to have said, Yani read whatever is easy that you may read from the Quran. Yani read from it whatever you may read. They use this as a proof that it is not obligatory to recite Al-Fatiha, but whatever you want to recite, whatever is easy for you from the Quran. And they, they bring this hadith as a proof, it is the hadith of the Prophet However, in another part of the hadith, there is that which contradicts them in another issue, and they ignore the hadith on that point, and they reject it, and they oppose it, and they contradict it in their ruling and in their opinion. He said uh, that further on in the hadith, the Prophet said, in the course of the hadith, that the person should bow until he is in a state of calmness. Then he should stand up until he is standing up straight and erect. Then he should prostrate until he is in a state of tranquility or calmness and prostration. Here in this hadith, then the Prophet said, and in this hadith he also said, He said to that man, Go back and pray again because you have not prayed. And you have not performed the prayer properly, so go back and pray again. And from amongst, uh, at the end of the hadith, the man said to him, I don't know any other way to pray, teach me how to pray. And then the Prophet gave him the description of the prayer, which contains these words, read whatever the Quran is easy for you. And they use that as a proof that it's not obligatory to recite al-Fatiha. However, the rest of the hadith, where the Prophet said, bow until you are in a state of tranquility, calmness and stand up straight until you are in a state of calmness and prostrate until you are in a state of calmness and the Prophet in that hadith has ordered that one should pray in this manner however they said the one who has not prayed with calmness and tranquility his prayer is still valid while the Prophet has ordered this man to repeat the prayer because he has not done so and he has ordered him to pray again he said you have not prayed to go back and pray again However, we find that these people, they accept that part of the hadith which is in agreement with them and they reject from the very same hadith that which is not in agreement with them. Al-Imam Al-Qayyam gives a lot of examples like this. However, however, time will not permit any to discuss them. The important thing is that uh, this is something that is very common and he gave so many pages of examples like this of those who are not honest in their taqlid. Yani the person who doesn't have the ability to reach the truth and he follows a, an imam, a scholar, 
or a madhab in whatever they say and do without requesting evidence, it is wrong enough, but he doesn't know any better. But what about the one who, who can get some of the evidence and is capable and able to find evidence to support that which is in agreement with his madhab? And in the very same proof and evidence he finds that his contradiction and he rejects it. This is the matter that is very serious and it is, and it is an indication of the lack of sincerity and that, uh, that a person has to be sincere in seeking the truth. And that's what the Sheikh said, that what is obligatory on the mujtahid is that he makes every effort sincerely to seek the truth and then make his ruling according to that which he has found. Uh, also, and besides this book, there is another book which and is also very interesting and beneficial. It is Al-Qawl Al-Mufid, the identity which he has, but that lead the Imam Muhammad ibn Ali al-Shawkani, Rahimahullah, one of the great scholars from Yemen, who is a scholar in Sikh and Tafsir and Hadith, uh, and who has written many beneficial books. Uh, he has written this book similar to what has been written by Imam Ibn Qayyim. However, he has presented the arguments one by one, the arguments of those who fall to blind following, and he has refuted them yeah, separately one by one, which is very beneficial. He has also quoted and some of the sayings of the Imam, uh, perhaps any of that which he has quoted, which and he makes clear the issue, uh, is uh, that which has been reported concerning the four Imams, and I'll just mention one of them. He said it has been authentically reported uh, through a number of any chains of narration from the author of the book Al-Hidayah, he said that it was said to Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, if you have said something, yani if you have expressed an opinion, and that which is in the book of Allah is contradictory to it, what shall we do? He said, leave my saying for the book of Allah. And Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, he said, if I have said something, and it is in contradiction to the, to the book of Allah, he said, leave what I have said, and take the book of Allah. They said to him, if something has been reported from the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, which is in contradiction to what you have said, what shall we do? He said, leave my saying for that which has been reported from the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It was said to him, if it was a statement from the, a Sahabi, which contradicts what you have said. He said, leave what I have said for the saying of a Sahabi. This makes us to know, it is clear, that the Imams themselves, and the reason why I have mentioned, and he has mentioned all of the Imams, but the reason why I have mentioned Imam Abu Hanifa, is because of that which is well known uh, in some of the places that we have had experience with where the people are following the Hanafi Madhab and they claim to be following Imam Abu Hanifa. However, we find them fanatically following whatever has been reported in his, in his Madhab, whether it is from him or it is not from him, whether it has proof or it has no proof. While Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah himself, has rejected such an idea and he has ordered the people to leave what he has said if it is in contradiction to the Book of Allah or to the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, or the saying of Sahaba. Uh, before that then, quickly, we can look at the questions that are mentioned at the end. The first question discussed briefly after the status, the six fundamentals mentioned by the Mu'allim. What is the six? What is this principle that we have discussed? Naam? 
نعم وتلك دعوة كمانة نعم Any further? Naam. Yani, the shubha that he has given here, it is related to abandoning the Qur'an and Sunnah for following the opinion, which are not based on Qur'an and Sunnah. And it is based on the argument that nobody can really know or understand the Qur'an and Sunnah except a mujtahid who is, yani, who is able to make absolute ijtihad, yani, outside the restrictions of a madhab. Since no one is able to understand it except such a person and they have described them with certain qualifications that are almost unheard of or unfound in anyone, then that means that nobody should go to the Qur'an and Sunnah directly. You should leave it and only go to يعني, the opinion of the imams or the scholars or whoever has said such and such and so on. Because of the difficulty as they claim of understanding the Qur'an and the Sunnah. The second question, what does the Mu'allim, the author mean by al-Dururiyat al-Aamah? And he, in his statement he said, and he further down he said that uh, Allah has clarified this matter to such an extent that it has reached the point of being from amongst those things that are الضروريات العامة. What is meant by this expression? Basic knowledge, okay. More specifically? Yani, he means here that it has reached such an extent. Yani, the clarity of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explained in the Quran is to such an extent that this matter is of those things that it is of necessity that every Muslim needs to know and every Muslim is capable of knowing. It's not something that is of the unessential knowledge that perhaps many of the people can do without, but it is of those things that are of necessity. It has to be known by everyone. The common masses, everyone has to know. So if it is like that, how is it that even the scholars today, they don't know? Define al-ijtihad, linguistically and technically. Now, linguistically, it means making the effort to reach or to achieve some difficult matter. Now, Technically, now making the effort, putting forth the effort, striving, going through the text, the evidences of the Sharia, of the Quran and Sunnah, in order to reach or to derive a legal ruling, the matter of the Sharia, a matter of the deen. Now, list some of the sharut or conditions mentioned by the Sharia, the explainers. That is Shaykh Muhammad. What are some of the conditions that he mentioned for ijtihad? Okay, they should know something about the evidences, the evidences of ahkam, the evidences that are related to laws from the ayats of the Qur'an and from the hadith of the Prophet they should know those. And they should know the ayats of the Qur'an that are related to ahkam. And they should know most, if not all of, or be familiar with and are able to have access to the hadith of the Prophet which are related to ahkam. Also, Arabic language, naam. How to know the Arabic language, naam? How to distinguish, to know something about the hadith which are authentic from those which are not. How to determine the authenticity of hadith. Now, the knowledge of abrogation and nasiq al-mansuq, to know yani, which evidences 
have been abrogated, so that you don't make a ruling based on something that is abrogated. Now, Usul of Fiqh, the science of Usul of Fiqh, and the matter is that the principles or the rules or the foundations that are in Usul of Fiqh, and in those foundations which are general principles that are used as guidelines when we look at the evidences of Quran and Sunnah. Like the, like the scholars, they say that when a command came, a command indicates that something is obligatory. Al-amru yaqtadi al-wujub. That is a general principle, that a command indicates that which is obligatory. There are other rules, such as that the command that came after, the prohibition, indicates permissibility. And in knowing these rules and applying them to the evidences is what we are talking about in the school of Fiqh. Now, what else? Ijma, to know what there's Ijma concerning, that the scholars have reached consensus. That which there's Ijma about, then there's no need to open it. There's no need to make Ijtihad in it and to come with a new ruling that the scholars have already agreed upon by consensus. Now, what else? And they should know something about the indication of expression. Dalalat al-alfaz. What do the expressions or the words in Arabic language indicate in reference to that which is general and that which is specific and that which is limited and that which is absolute and so on? They have to know something about this. Now. Now. Well, it's not of the shirut of the condition of ijtihad, but I think we have mentioned most of them. In any case, also define exactly line following in the two situations when it will occur. That is closer to what he has said now. What are the situations in which a taklid will occur? One of them? Now, a common person from amongst the people who is not able to look at the evidences or understand them or derive rulings, then in that situation, they may take the opinion from someone else. Now, and the second situation is the Mujtahid scholar. Now, who's not in a position to research or to look at or examine or consider and reflect upon the situation, he has to make a ruling instantly, and in that case it's also permissible for him to take the opinion of someone else. Mention the two types of taklid with an explanation. What are the two types of taklid first? Two types. What are they? Huh? Al-Aam al-Khaf. What is Al-Aam and what is Al-Khaf? Al-Aam is the person following a particular madhab, a specific madhab, and he is following all of the rulings of that madhab. Whatever has been commanded or prohibited or allowed, he is following it. In the absolute sense, not going outside of it. This is Taklid Aam. Al-Khaf. Okay, even if he is not following a method, but he is taking an opinion in a particular issue or a particular matter. He is following the opinion of a scholar in a particular matter, not in everything that he says, in the whole of his deen, but he is on a particular occasion, in a particular situation or circumstance, he is taking the opinion of someone else. Now, also, what is the, the hukum, shari'i, or the legal ruling for each type of takli? What is the ruling concerning the arm? What is the legal ruling concerning Huh? There's ikhtilaf. Naam, there's ikhtilaf. 
concerning Tafnid Am. What is the ikhtilaf? Some of the scholars said that it's compulsory, that it's wajib. And some of them said that it's haram, that it's forbidden, muharram. And the ruling concerning khas, taklid, khas, what? Jaj, jaj, it is permissible. Yani it is permissible for the person, yani the common person who can't reach any ruling, and it is permissible for the mujtahid who is in a situation of necessity where he has to make a ruling. And what is the basis or the reasoning behind each of the above rulings? And what is the basis of those who said that taqlid am is obligatory? What is their argument? Why did they say it is obligatory? Ma'am, because of the inability of the people in the later generation, and the knowledge has disappeared from the people, and the people are far from the deen, and they didn't understand as the earlier generation. Therefore, they said people are incapable of making ijtihad, in that case they said it's obligatory, you must do taqlid. And those who said that it is forbidden, they said that absolute obedience is only for the Prophet of Allah that nobody else is entitled to have absolute obedience. Therefore they said it is haram. Now, and what about the, the thought? It is, what is the reasoning why it is allowed, taqlid? Why is it allowed? What is the argument or what is the basis of its allowance? When when someone is unable to know the truth of the matter, when someone is incapable, if you are incapable, first, if you don't know and you are incapable, then it is permissible for you to act about a particular issue, not to follow every opinion and every saying absolutely of any particular person. Mujtahid or otherwise imam from amongst the imma or whoever it may be. The last question, what is the jaza or the requital for the mujtahid scholar if he errs in his judgment? Naam. One reward. What about his mistake? He gets no punishment for it? His punishment is forgiven. His punish, I mean his error, his mistake, it is forgiven. There is no punishment for him. But his error, it is forgiven. And his ijtihad, it is rewarded. According to the hadith of the Prophet. If there are any, uh, I mean, perhaps we'll stop here. Subhanakallah, we'll stop here. Subhanakallah, And if there are any comments or questions or corrections before we leave, before we go to Salat, perhaps we can take a few moments. If you have any questions, we can call on the intercom. Some of them are saying that it is obligatory. No. Obviously, he is saying that it is not obligatory to blind follow. However, it is different here. We are saying that the author is saying that it is not what the refutation that he is making here it is against the argument that no one is allowed to make ishtihad except the one who reached this certain qualification and status that doesn't exist amongst us, perhaps. Therefore he is saying, based on that, nobody should go directly to the Qur'an and Sunnah, but everyone should only make taklid. What we are saying that in certain circumstances or certain situation or for some people, it is allowed to make taklid. However, that taklid, it shouldn't be the taklid of those who even if they came to know 
that the opinion which they have taken is wrong from evidence that they should still follow it. Taklid here means that the person who is incapable of finding the truth or the evidence or the proof in a matter, then he accepts what a scholar has said. However, if he came to know that what the scholar has told him is wrong and that there is evidence contradicting it and it became clear to him, then in that case it is not allowed for him to follow that opinion. It is haram because it is obligatory to follow the evidence of Quran and Sunnah. What is allowed of taklid is the situation where the person is incapable of deriving the ruling, they are incapable of knowing the evidence, and nobody brought to them the correct opinion. So they took the opinion of a scholar. The best of those who they could go to, they took their opinion and they followed it. However, they came to know that it is wrong and that the evidence is contrary to that. Then it is no longer allowed for them to continue in their position, but they should abandon it and follow that which they know to be correct. This is actually a question. Uh, the question is, how can we reconcile between, uh, it's from the question from the last week's topic, how can we reconcile uh, between the, uh, the evidences which show that the Prophet وسلم, wept or cried uh, out of concern? of what would be his condition in the next life or when he would stand before Allah and the evidence that suggests that the believers uh, that those who uh, have Iman and those who have Taqwa as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran that they would have no fear لا خوف عليهم ولهم يحزنون that they would not fear nor would they grieve of course the meaning of the Prophet sallallahu weeping it is only out of his uh, sincere desire to be as perfect as possible in fulfilling the commands of Allah and obeying Allah or avoiding that which Allah has prohibited. The Prophet ﷺ used to stand in the night for half of the night or two-thirds of the night or most of the night in prayer though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven him his previous sins. doesn't mean that because he has strived and struggled to reach perfection or to reach a higher level or to uh, improve himself again and again and again over his condition to earn the pleasure of Allah it doesn't mean that he is, uh, he is having fear or grief as mentioned in this ayat. The fear or grief in this ayat it means that they have no fear of what is ahead of them in the next life meaning that they would not be, uh, they would not be uh, agitated, their life would not, they would not be in a condition of fear so that they would not have peace even in this world. But the believer, he will have peace in this world, 
even though he knows he has shortcomings, even though he knows that he has made errors, that he has fallen into some act of disobedience, still he will have peace in this life, knowing that he is truly believing in Allah, and he is worshipping Allah, and he is trying to do the best he can. So it doesn't mean, the fear here, it means the fear of the disbelievers, who they know that they have done wrong, and they know that they have disbelieved in Allah, and they know that they are going to be punished. That is a fear that is a punishment for them in this life. That is what is meant by the fear, not that uh, the Prophet وسلم, that he feared that he is going to be in the hellfire in the next life. He didn't fear because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised him. As he has promised from amongst his companions, those who he mentioned, from amongst those who are guaranteed paradise. So he didn't have fear that he would be in the hellfire as the disbelievers fear. And it is a pain and a torment and a punishment for them even in this life uh, when they realize what they have done in disobedience to Allah. Naam. Naam. Yani, as the brother has said that it is the balance in Islam that the believer should be between the hope of Allah's reward and the fear of his punishment. It is the balance that a person realizes that they have shortcomings and they have defects and they have fallen into some act of disobedience of Allah and for that they, they realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala justly could punish them if he will. Therefore, a believer should fear that. We should not feel that we are safe from Allah's punishment. We should have fear of Allah's punishment because there is no one without shortcomings. And at the same time, the balance is that the believer also has hope. If he is a true believer, if she is a true believer, then they know that they also have hope of Allah's bounty and his reward, that he will reward those who believe in him even beyond that which they uh, have earned. Now. Now, also, any that perhaps also we can add to this and say that uh, the disbelievers they fear death because they know what is ahead. And the believer doesn't fear death, because it is a reality that we know we have to face. And they fear the loss of the things of this world, while the believer is hoping for the things of the next world. So even this is also part of any, the fear that they suffer from. Now. Yani in that hadith it is reported that the Prophet he said Yani that what he is doing is praying in the night and standing in the night uh, in that situation it is an expression of his gratitude. He said, Should I not be Abdan Shakuran? Shouldn't I be a thankful or grateful slave? And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has offered what he has offered and he has forgiven me my sins, then this is an expression of gratitude and thankfulness. So it is also it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the fear that is expressed by the disbelief.
Naam. Naam. Also, the hadith of those, yani the Prophet said that no one will eat the paradise according to their deeds alone. And when they asked him, not even you, Rasulullah, he said, not even me, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not covered me with his bounty and mercy. So this is also the reality of the situation. Yani that deeds alone are not sufficient. But whoever is the paradise, it is by the fadl of Allah and the rahmah of Allah. And the Prophet said, not even me. Naam. Not for Allah covering me with His mercy and His bounty. Uh, the sisters also asked a question from last week about the inner realities of faith and what the Shaykh has quoted there concerning this uh, expression. It appears as though the meaning of it, and he hasn't discussed it in, in detail, but it appears as though what he means by this, he mentioned the inner realities of faith and the outward expression of yani, or the exemplification or the demonstration of the Sharia, it means that the believer should have two sides. It is the outward performance of those things that are required by the Sharia, and that is not enough outwardly, but also within the heart, within the person, that which is not seen, they should also have true Iman. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only knows. The reality of the Iman, it is only known by Allah. So this is the other side, that it is not sufficient that one outwardly uh, shows Islam or performs the things that Islam requires of them, but also they must have true iman within their heart, and that which is, yani, it is that which is the reality of that is only known to Allah. Subhanahu